This is episode 188 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, A Couple of Contagions. This episode is part of our Literary Sunday series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. When I discovered there was a book called Contagion, I thought it must be the book that the movie Contagion was based on, like a lot of people. There are a bunch of reviews on Amazon by confused people thinking the book is way different from the movie. And actually, the two of them have nothing to do with each other except that they're both titled Contagion, and they're both about, well, contagions the spread of disease by close contact, or the disease itself. We'll talk about Contagion, the book, first. It's actually less serious and less interesting of the two works. When does that ever happen? Uh, So we'll just knock it off here. It's a 1996 novel by Robin Cook, who is a prolific writer and a multi-time bestseller, who's popularized the, quote, medical thriller, which is a kind of thriller that's set in the medical field or having to do with new medical technologies. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But here's an overview of the plot, since uh, books like his are very plot-driven. And if you are a Robin Cook fan, I'll mention that this is the second in the Jack Stapleton and Laurie Montgomery series, but it stands alone. You don't have to know their backstory. And in fact, I suspect it makes the book more interesting if you don't. Jack Stapleton is the main character in this book. Uh, He's an interesting guy, by far my favorite. He's kind of an oddball medical examiner who lives in Harlem and rides his bike to work through New York City traffic. So he has a bit of a death wish, both professionally and personally, and he's kind of funny. Uh, So here's where we first meet him as Jack. Wednesday, 7.15 a.m., March 20th, 1996, New York City. Excuse me, Jack Stapleton said with false civility to the darkly complected Pakistani cab driver. Would you care to step out of your car so we can discuss this matter fully? Jack was referring to the fact that the cab driver had cut him off at the intersection of 46th Street and 2nd Avenue. In retaliation, Jack had kicked the cab's driver's side door when they had both stopped at a red light at 44th Street. Jack was on his Cannondale mountain bike that he used to commute to work. 
This morning's confrontation was not unusual. Jack's daily routine included a hair-raising slalom down 2nd Avenue from 59th Street to 30th Street at breakneck speed. There were frequent close calls with trucks and taxi cabs and the inevitable arguments. Anyone else would have found the trip nerve-wracking. Jack loved it. As he explained to his colleagues, it got his blood circulating. And being married to someone who's a bit like this, I did enjoy Jack. He gets in way big trouble at work when bodies start showing up at the morgue and he starts throwing around terms like plague and tularemia, which is some kind of rabbit fever. And of course, Jack turns out to be right. And it turns out that these dead people are dying of these bizarre, obscure diseases. And also, that's not an accident, dot, dot. The book is aimed at a pretty low reading level, and it's publicized as a fast read, which always seems like kind of a backhanded compliment. The writing is not sophisticated. There are laughable coincidences, and the dialogue seems especially awkward. Here's a bit that's like that. I see you made it into the office once again without having to come in feet first, Lori said teasingly. She was referring to Jack's dangerous bike ride. Coming in feet first was office vernacular for arriving dead. Only one brush with the taxi, Jack said. I'm accustomed to three or four. It was like a ride in the country this morning. I'm sure, Lori said without belief. Personally, I think you are foolhardy to ride your bike in this city. I've autopsied several of those daredevil bicycle messengers. Every time I see one in traffic, I wonder when I'll be seeing him in the pit. The pit was office vernacular for autopsy room. It seems like it would be better to find a different way to explain that, quote, office vernacular, or maybe even give your readers the benefit of the doubt that they might be able to figure that out on their own. The book has all the usual issues with fast writing. Characters do things that are out of character for the benefit of the plot, like the really murderous Harlem gang leader who suddenly turns out to have a heart of gold, or just behave in some unlikely way. In this book, there's after several near-death experiences at the hands of wild-eyed gunmen, some of whom actually end up dead themselves, the characters go out to eat at a nice Italian restaurant. There's inexplicable changes in point of view narration, like just suddenly for one sentence you'll be inside some new person's head. And then often the readers know more of the backstory than the characters do, so I guess the reader gets to feel kind of smart while they watch things unfold, but it also feels kind of cheap, like that was just an easy way to get us that information. The whodunit is, on one hand, way too easy to guess. I see from my notes that I identified him less than 30% through the book, but also impossible because some characters suddenly turn into a new person that you've never met before in the pages, just, you know, ha-ha, my name is something new, and now my, my mask is off and I'm a really evil person. But maybe it's good to have several culprits for various kinds of readers, those who want to be able to guess and then those who want to be surprised. And anyway, you know, it's a fast read. And one thing I'll say to Robin's credit is that the patients in the hospitals are generally 
speaking presented as decent people. Often uh, he really takes their side in uh, the way the medical establishment treats them. And the staff is also presented as diligent and hardworking, and maybe patients and staff are the people that these books are targeted at. I thought I'd never heard of Robin Cook, but then I realized that I have seen his books like in the grocery stores and the drugstore shelves. He's written at least 37 books in this medical thriller genre, and most of them have one-word titles like this, like Contagion. He just turned 80 this year, and he began publishing 47 years ago. Really interesting to me to see that he deliberately set out to become a best-selling author, and he succeeded fantastically. He was born in New York and studied at Columbia to become an ophthalmologist. He was drafted in 1969 and joined the Navy. He wrote his first novel, which was called Year of the Intern on a Submarine in 1973, It was an insider's view into the overwork and psychological concerns of a medical intern. It didn't sell very well, so he began to study bestsellers. And he wrote, I studied how the reader was manipulated by the writer. I came up with a list of techniques that I wrote down on index cards, and I used every one of them in coma. And coma was his second novel and his first bestseller. His intentions aren't always uh, financially self-serving. He's also said that he saw his books as an opportunity to get the public interested in things about medicine that they didn't seem to know about. I believe my books are actually teaching people. And he tends to write about new technologies, ethical issues, or ones of social concern like stem cells, organ donation, and transplantation, fertility and in vitro treatment, genetic engineering, medical tourism, yada, yada. And he said, besides entertaining the readers, my main goal is to get people interested in some of these issues because it's the public that ultimately should be able to decide which way we ought to go in something as ethically questioning as stem cell research. In Contagion, he's sort of harping about hospitals spending money on advertising instead of on patient care, but he doesn't actually make that much of a case because it's pretty buried in this far-fetched plot, and it's also pretty devoid of nuance and the facts. But I probably did learn a few things. He does provide some factoids about the diseases that appear in the book, But he does this kind of funny thing where he leans really heavily on medical terminology, which you wouldn't expect given how he over-explains other things. Like, here's an example and see if you have the same reaction or if this seems okay to you. And this guy uh, is the guy who turns out actually to have the plague. Any question of the patient being immunologically compromised, Jack asked. Did he have AIDS or had he been treated with anti-metabolites? Not that I could ascertain, Janice said. The only problem he had listed was diabetes and some of the usual sequela. He also does it with regular vocabulary, which seemed kind of contrived. Uh, But I did learn a few new words. It is great how you can look up words on your e-reader on the spot. It's so cool. 
Anyway, uh, there's this usage of kind of an unusual word. As usual, she was wearing a simple tailored suit that limbed her slim athletic body. I don't know, it just sort of jumped out at me. And he also does it in dialogue. You're a goddamn paradox, Bingham remarked as he visibly calmed down. At the same time, you've been such a pain in the butt, you've made some commendable diagnoses. I was impressed when Calvin told me about the tularemia and the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It's like you're two different people. What am I to do? Fire the irritating one and keep the other, Jack suggested. Bingham grunted a reluctant chuckle, but any sign of amusement quickly faded. The main problem, from my perspective, he grumbled, is that you are so goddamn contumacious, which means stubbornly disobedient. He also has this weird construction. Beth Holderness emerged along with a waft of warm, moist air and nearly collided with Jack. You scared me to death, she said, pressing a hand to her chest. I'm not sure who scared whom more, Jack said. It doesn't seem like that's how people would talk, even Jack. It just rings false, for me, at least. And then there's this other, "Uh uh-oh, Jack voiced. What's wrong with said? It seems just distracting. So that's Robin Cook and his Contagion. He has some other books like Pandemic and Outbreak, which might even be closer to the plot of uh, our current days of COVID. If you're looking for a kind of fast but not very fulfilling read, you can think of him. He's kind of like the powdered donuts of literature. Not very good for you, but not as bad as Twinkies. Now let's talk about the movie Contagion, which is much more satisfying. It came out in 2011, but boy, is it ever still timely. I hadn't seen it before, and I'm probably behind everybody else because I guess it shot up in popularity uh, after the pandemic reached the U.S. to pass all other films except, guess what, the Harry Potter movies. It stars five Oscar winners and five nominees. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow shows up very early and uh, she dies right away. That is signaled by the movie, so I'm not giving anything away. Her husband is played by Matt Damon, a kind of nice, ordinary guy from Minneapolis. Lawrence Fishburne plays a CDC doctor, a kind of Dr. Fauci type uh, character, until he gets surprised and discredited uh, by a fake treatment conspiracy theory bad guy who is also great because he's played by Jude Law. He's got this terrible name of Crumweedy or something like that. Marion Cotillon plays an epidemiologist from the World Health Organization. Kate Winslet plays an epidemic intelligence officer. And Elliot Gould, yay, Elliot Gould, plays a scientist who pursues his work uh, despite the forces that are trying to shut it down. He's a big hero. I won't say too much about the plot because I think you should watch the movie if you haven't seen it yet. Especially in this moment, you'll be able to appreciate how clairvoyant it is and also where it's blundered. You may find yourself reacting to some of the goofs, like when the wrong mask is used or someone isn't wearing their PPE correctly. Uh, It's so funny how much more we know now. But the movie is astonishingly good for when it was made. And it's organized by day. 
although we don't get day one until the very end. And day one really feels prophetic. The director, Steven Soderbergh, is so skilled at making movies that feel like documentaries but move like drama. And he's the director of Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which mesmerized me back in my days of being a film scholar. I had gotten my certificate in film studies and saw zillions of movies back then. Sex, Lies, and Videotape really blew me away. It starred James Spader, uh, Andy McDowell, Peter Gallagher, and Laura San Giacomo. So he had a hell of a cast to work with. And at 26, he was the youngest director to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which is their highest prize. Roger Ebert called him the poster boy for the Sundance generation, and that movie, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, was considered a catalyst of the 1990s independent cinema. He then went on to make Out of Sight, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic in 2000, the one about drugs, which I also highly recommend. He won an Academy for that one. He's also directed the Oceans trilogy, which personally I didn't find as interesting. Magic Mike, Side Effects, Logan Lucky, and Unsane. Here's some background on him. He was born in Atlanta and turned 57 this year. His dad was Dean of Education at Louisiana State, and Stephen went to Louisiana State University Laboratory School High School. So not exactly a Hollywood kid, uh, but he moved to Hollywood to work in film. And in the very, very early days, he did a concert video for the band Yes and got a Grammy nomination for that. Then things got a little rough for him after Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and you can see he's kind of trying to figure things out with the various projects he worked on. He made Kafka, which is about Franz Kafka. He made the drama King of the Hill, which is about a boy during the Great Depression. In 1995, he directed The Underneath, uh, which also had Peter Gallagher in it. He seems to like to work with a certain set of actors. Uh, Underneath was a film noir that was widely panned by the critics. And then in what he later called his wake-up call, a schizopolis, in which he plays the spokesperson for a cult, kind of like Scientology, and also uh, a dentist who's having an affair with the spokesperson's wife. Yikes. I never saw it, but it sounds pretty complicated. He reworked it after it was submitted to Cannes. It switched languages several times without subtitles, so it's a hard movie. And he wrote a title page that read, In the event that you find certain sequences or events confusing, please bear in mind this is your fault, not ours. You will need to see the picture again and again until you understand everything. I don't know, but that feels like as though you have to put that in front of your movie. Not everything is going well. It was considered a low point in his career from, from a critic's standpoint. But I noticed that that was right around the time that he released A Grey's Anatomy, one of the great Spalding Gray's monologues on film, uh, which you may know him as from the movie Swimming to Cambodia, which was directed by Jonathan Demme. Spalding Gray tragically left us too soon, and Soderbergh, after that, made a documentary about him 
titled And Everything is Going Fine. I'm not surprised that Gray and Soderbergh found each other, although Gray was 20 years his senior. Soderbergh is known for nonlinear storytelling, experimental sequencing, uh, plot twists, and interesting soundtracks that are all on display in Contagion, but also work well in heist movies and movies like Aaron Brockovich, another movie that feels like a documentary with narrative pacing. In fact, Soderbergh was uh, nominated for Best Director in 2001 for both Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, quite a feather in his cap. He then started working on the Oceans movie, starting with Oceans 11, and that became his highest grossing movie. But from there, the list just goes on and on. He made Full Frontal, which was sort of a very confusing sequel to Sex, Lies, and Videotape with maybe some obscure blurring of reality and fiction with a bunch of Hollywood actors. Soderbergh then did K Street with George Clooney, which is an HBO political series. He also did Criminal, Bubble, The Informant, and that was another one with Matt Damon about a corporate whistleblower. He almost directed Moneyball, but he got booted off that project in 2009, I like that movie, um, but I do recommend the book more highly, and so I wonder how good it would have been if Soderbergh had been kept on that project. That finally brings us to Contagion, about a deadly virus that surges across the globe and kills a huge number of people really, really fast in uh, a very dramatic way. In fact, one of the goofs that they explain in the movie is that a virus like that would likely die off quickly because it kills its host so fast. Something like COVID-19 is more successful as a virus because it's less lethal and its incubation period is so much longer so more people can get infected, including, as we know this weekend, the president of the United States. It is remarkable how familiar the scenes are in contagion from PPE to runs on sanitizer, schools closing, quarantines, roadblocks. But what happens in the movie is much, much worse than our situation today, at least so far. There are a few funny bits, uh, but there are also some kind of emotional moments. It's not a tearjerker, but it is moving. And you should watch it so you have your own reaction. It's eye-opening to read the Amazon reviews of the film from that January, February, March time frame when I think a lot of people were watching the movie. Jeff Jevnaker wrote in January of 2020, great film, very realistic depiction of what would occur if something like this happened. However, bad idea to watch during the coronavirus outbreak because now I'm freaking out. And Corinna Shackelford wrote also on January 29th, Scary Film, Use Purell. And she writes, Not the movie to watch before bed, especially with the current news. Oh, why did I do this to myself? That being said, I'm buying supplies in case a pandemic happens. Well done, film. Miss Benz wrote in mid-March, If the coronavirus has a playbook, this movie would be it. Don't watch this movie if your anxiety levels are already high from the current global pandemic. I'm warning you now. And Alistair Veal wrote also in mid-March from San Francisco, 
uh, long review, and then he concludes by saying, thus contagion is about what would happen if SARS from 2002 were to have gone more global than it did. Good drama, well-acted, well-written, but a bit Pollyanna and its happy ending. On the other hand, SARS did end almost as rapidly as it began, so this means that contagion could be accurate for some viruses, but just not for COVID-19. By the way, he says, COVID-19 means coronavirus disease, COVID-2019. It does not mean the 19th coronavirus as one fathead radio broadcaster keeps misinforming us all. <laughs> so, people, how I do love you. Contagion premiered at the Venice Film Festival and was uh, successful commercially and financially. The New York Times called it the smart, spooky thriller about a thicket of contemporary plagues, a killer virus, rampaging fear, an unscrupulous blogger is as ruthlessly effective as the malady at its cool, cool center. I think that's a really great description of it. In general, it's quite good at explaining things like the r naught number, mortality rates, fomites, bat DNA, and exponential growth, although the evil blogger Jude Law gets it a little bit wrong, but that's what evil bloggers do, right? Sadly, the CDC and the World Health Organization are shown are shown as driving the public and scientific response to the pandemic which didn't really happen with COVID-19, at least not in the U.S. For the movie's accuracy, we can thank Scott Z. Burns, who wrote the screenplay. And in an article from June of 2020, he said he and Soderbergh and Matt Damon all started thinking about a movie about a global pandemic uh, right when they were finishing The Informant. Burns has worked on the realistic details along with his advisor, Dr. Ian Lipkin from Columbia University and dozens of scientists, ER docs, biosafety experts, and epidemiologists, including Mark Smolinski, who became the president now of a nonprofit called Ending Pandemics. And Smolinski says he uses the movie as a teaching tool. There was a lot of help available to uh, Burns and everyone affiliated with the movie to go through the script line by line and make sure it was accurate because people have been saying for decades that it wasn't a matter of if we would have a pandemic from an animal virus, but when. And the movie people, including financier Jeff Skoll, were willing to spend the money to get the movie right. I was reminded of the article in this month's Atlantic titled, Why the Virus Won, and you can see where the movie anticipated that certain things would happen, like the role of CDC being the public face of the national response to the pandemic, which just didn't happen. Burns was asked what he would change in the movie if he had it to do it over again, and he said, I expected a compassionate, rapid science-based, apolitical response from everyone in the country. There was nothing in my research that suggested a response as inadequate as the one that we've seen. I do think I would lean more heavily into the responsibility we have to each other in this moment. And Smolinski said, We've been asking for more than 35 years for help, so I hope the next 10 years are different. 
Back in 2011, after the movie was released, the Public Health Informatics Institute weighed in with its observations about the accuracy of the movie, and it criticized the representation of how scientists had immediate access to information about infection rate, mortality, the spread of infections, and where the virus was. There's a scene in the movie where a World Health Organization scientist goes to a computer and pulls up real-time information. And Dr. David Ross, who wrote that article from PHII, said that was pretty unlikely because they learned during the H1N1 outbreak that it was hard to get and compile information across hospitals because they use all these different systems, some of which are still paper systems. So I'd love to say, you know, here we are almost 10 years later that that, if we'd solved that problem by 2020, but when you have a teenager in Seattle who created a website to gather information around the globe, a website that ended up being used by a tremendous number of people, you know that you have a problem, especially as we've learned in 2020 with information coming out of institutions like nursing homes that aren't required to release information, and when it's really against their commercial interest to do so. All that said, there's so many things that the movie got right. I was kind of amazed. Its tagline is, nothing spreads like fear, And it didn't quite anticipate the release of something like the pandemic video, but pretty close, at least with social media being a key provider of information. And did I already say that Jude Law is really something in the movie? There are a lot of scenes of the collapse of bureaucracy and impact on our children, which are way too close to home. And some things I hope are right, like the creation of a vaccine, though sadly in the movie they get it much faster than we will, much. But I hope that we don't use the method that's shown in the movie to figure out who's going to get the vaccine first, hint, hint. So now you have to watch it. The virus in the movie kills a lot more people than COVID-19 has, maybe because Hollywood. Uh, But the Atlantic article, which I also recommend, is very sobering about the many things that the U.S. got right in the movie that didn't actually happen in real life. Early detection and comprehensive reaction, very fast contact tracing, and then, of course, the creation of the vaccine within months of the first outbreak. The article is kind of an overview of the ways that the U.S. bungled its response, along with mistakes by China and the World Health Organization. And it emphasizes that many deadlier viruses are out there in wild animals. And the writer of that article, Ed Young, refers to COVID-19 as a starter pandemic. We've had so much bad news this year, but the good news is we have a chance to improve ourselves before we are tested again. And with that, I'll get off my soapbox and wind this up. There are two contagions for you, one a novel by Robin Cook that is not realistic nor a source for the movie, Uh, but it looks as though Robin has done lots of books about medical issues, if those are of interest to you, and also if you want to learn a little vocabulary. 
And then there's the movie Contagion, which I do recommend. And I'll close by saying I really appreciate living in a time when Steven Soderbergh is making movies. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.